When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you're interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, Ellie Griffiths returns to chat with me about The Last Remains. Ellie is the USA Today bestselling author of the Ruth Galloway and Brighton Mystery series and the standalone novels The Stranger Diaries, The Postscript Murders, and Bleeding Heart Yard. She is a recipient of the Egger Award for the Best Novel, the Mary Higgins Clark Award, and the CWA Dagger in the Library Award. She lives in Brighton, England. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome, Ellie. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you, Cindy. It's great to be here. I am so glad you're back. I love the Ruth Galloway series, and we talked a little bit about it when we were talking about your last book, but I'm glad you're here today to talk about it. Yeah, well, I'm very glad to be here. Yes, it's it's not long before The Last Remains is out in the US, so I'm really excited about that. Well, before we start chatting about The Last Remains, let's talk about the series generally and how this is the last one, at least for now. Yes, I'm saying the last for now. I must admit I'm keeping a few of my options open. But yes, so the uh, Ruth Galloway series is about a forensic archaeologist called Dr. Ruth Galloway, and she lives on her own or on her own with her cats at the beginning of the series on a, a beautiful but rather desolate bit of the North Norfolk coast, North Norfolk coast, which is on the, the eastern side of Great Britain. It's a very beautiful place, but a very, you know, very full of history, very full of folklore um, and folk memory. But also, you know, it can be quite sort of desolate certain times of the year. 
So in the first book, which is called The Crossing Places, Ruth is called in by the police because they've found bones on the marshland. And Ruth sees the bones and knows almost immediately that they're actually over 2,000 years old. But she's drawn into the case and into a very complicated relationship with a police officer who's called DCI Harry Nelson. So The Last Remains is book 15. And uh, almost 15 years have passed. I've written one a year for 15 years. And now we're going to see, I think, where that relationship ends up in a way. It's not the end of the whole thing, probably, but it's certainly the end of this chapter in Ruth's life. I like that, this chapter in Ruth's life. Yeah, yes. It's quite fitting, isn't it? It is. I've been reading them since the beginning, and I didn't really think about there had been one a year. That's quite a pace because, as we talked last time, you're also writing other books in between. Well, I didn't really think about it. It sounds silly to say that, really. But I was thinking the other day that, yes, I've written one a year for 15 years. So I've written through my my kids growing up and going away to university. I've written through my mum getting ill and dying. I've written through COVID and lockdown and all the other sort of smaller joys and sorrows of the last 15 years. So really, Ruth has been my constant companion. And you're right to say as well, I've written other books because the last few years I've been writing two a year. So I've got a series that are called The Brighton Mysteries Now, which are set in the 1950s and 60s in the theatrical world. And I've written some standalones as well, uh, Stranger Diaries, Postscript Murders, and more recently, Bleeding Heart Yard. So yeah, quite a few books in the last few years. That's pretty impressive. Well, I don't know. It feels odd to sort of think about it in that way, doesn't it really? But um, it, it feels it's been a real privilege, I have to say that, because Not many people, not many writers get the chance to write their dream series. And certainly when I started these books, you know, when I started with The Crossing Places, I didn't know that it would be a series. I I knew there was a series there, if that makes sense. I knew that Ruth was a character who kind of could sustain a series. And I also knew her relationship with Nelson would be a long running one. But I didn't know that I'd get a chance to write it really. And so few writers do get a chance to write that many books. So I have to say, um, I feel very lucky. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. When you started out, did you ever dream that you'd be 15 books in? No, not at all, because I'd written four books before and they were under my real name, which you know, Cindy, is Domenica de Rosa. So I wrote these, um, I guess guess they were kind of romances, women's fiction under my real name. And when I wrote um, The Crossing Places, my then publishers didn't want it. So I didn't think it would get published at all. But then Luckily, there was another publisher, Quirkus Books, and a wonderful editor, Jane Wood, who did want it. But, you know, then I thought, and then I had to have a new name. So my agent said to me, you know, maybe you could sell the book if you had a more crimey name. So I came up with Ellie Griffiths, which was actually my grandmother's name. She was Ellen Griffiths. But I thought I'd only be Ellie for that one book. You know, now I think there are 28 Ellie Griffiths books, which seems amazing. So absolutely not. I thought I would be lucky to write one in this series, maybe two, you know, with a bit of a following wind, three or four, but certainly not this many. I love that you mentioned the pseudonym again, because we talked about that last time, and I didn't know that, and I usually do know it, and I was like, ah, but it is interesting that the name that you chose as your pseudonym, first of all, that it was your grandmother's, I love that, but second, that that's the name you're writing under all the time now. Yes, and it's so funny, isn't it? Because I think if you were to see, and I think we chatted about this last time, if you were to see Domenica de Rosa, and Ellie Griffiths. I think you'd assume that Domenica de Rosa was the pseudonym. But of course, it's my real name. It's Italian. My dad was Italian. So uh, having that sort of exotic name like that, I must admit it probably did influence my decision to be a writer. You know, I thought I had a writery name. 
So it feels quite strange, but also a bit liberating, really, really, to be better known under this other, more kind of prosaic name, but still, it's still a great name. And as, and as I said, still a family name was my grandmother's name. So I, my ancestry is half Italian, half Welsh. And I think I said this before, I should be able to sing, but I can't. <laughs> I do think it's funny because your real name does sound like it would be the pseudonym. Yes, it really does. And I think people are kind of surprised by it uh, when, when I come up with it. And it's, it's just a name that does sound a bit made up, but it is my real name. And I think the thinking as well was that Domenica de Rosa is a very romantic name, and my first four books were quite romantic. So I think it was felt that it wasn't quite hard-edged and crimey enough. So Ellie Griffiths is my crime name. Was it grim enough? It sounded too happy. I think so. It sounded a bit too happy, sounded too Italianate maybe. And I think maybe at the time there, there might have been in the UK and here fewer writers writing with, with European names. Um, now maybe it's a little bit different, names, names that weren't British sounding. But yeah, so it's, it's been a, a while since I've been written anything, anything other than Ellie Griffiths, really. I think that's just fascinating to think about. I think it is interesting, but I do remember somebody saying that um, they thought that writers whose names began FGH sold more. So because it's on eye level in the shops, you know, A's at the top, Z's down below, FGH is sort of on eye level. So I don't know how true that is, but there we are. There's, there's another reason for being Ellie Griffiths. Exactly. Well, how did you settle on Norfolk originally? Well, what it was, was I was on holiday in Norfolk with my husband, Andy, who's an archaeologist, uh, when I had the idea for the series. And we were kind of walking along this this beautiful bit of Norfolk coastline. And it's um, kind of marshy. There's marshland, there's sand dunes, and there's sea. And Andy happened to say that prehistoric people had thought marshland was sacred because it's neither land nor sea, but something in between, kind of liminal zone, if you like. That That's why prehistoric people sometimes buried bodies there because they thought it was a link to the afterlife, neither land nor sea, neither life nor death. So it was that sort of bridging place, that sort of in-between place. So that gave me the idea for the first Ruth book. And I realized immediately that she would have to be an archaeologist. And I suppose then it was just the, the really natural choice to make her live in Norfolk, because Norfolk is full of archaeology. It really genuinely is full of bodies, because it's been inhabited for so long. I think the earliest human footprints outside Africa are found in Norfolk, on the Norfolk coast there, Haysborough. Of course, it wasn't a, a sea coast then, it was, it was a river coast. But uh, it really has been inhabited for a long time. So there's loads of archaeology, there are loads of stories, there's loads of mythology. Also, my grandmother, the first Ellie Griffiths, lived in Norfolk and my aunt lived there for a long time. So I used to spend holidays there as a child. And I was really fond of the area. And my Aunt Marge, who is credited in the first book, In the Crossing Places, was great at telling these kind of Norfolk ghost stories, a lot of which have found their way into the book. So it really did just seem the perfect setting for, for a, a series of books, really. I always enjoy series that are set someplace unique. And I think that's what drew me into your series originally. And then I worked at Murder by the Book for a while, and it was such a hugely popular series there. And I was always selling it. And I would hear that over and over again. I love the setting. That's so lovely. And Murder by the Book have been so supportive always. There's a few sort of uh, bookshops in the US that have been so supportive from the beginning. Yes, I like that too about a series. You know, if you're in Donna Leon's Venice or Colin Dexter's Oxford or something, I do like the idea of finding out about a new place as well as finding out who did it, really. It is quite a, I think, crime fiction as well. 
quite often is very much about the landscape and the place, isn't it? Maybe buried memories that come with the come with the terrain. So I think landscape and, and setting is really important in crime fiction. I think that's exactly right, because we often talk about how history bubbles up to the surface all the time and the past bubbles up. And so I think that's definitely a theme in your books. Oh, great. Well, I'd very much like to think so, I guess. And I think there is that sort of sense that maybe the landscape itself is important. You know, that comes from that very beginning bit about the marshland being a sacred place. I think sometimes the setting itself is almost a character, isn't it, in crime fiction? If you think of the shifting and the shivering sands in uh, Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, which I must admit is one of my favourite books, it's that sense that the place itself is almost a character. I love that. I love that too. Well, do you have a favourite in the series? You talk about how long you've been writing it and the various things that have happened during those 15 years. Is there any particular story that you look back on and think, I loved that time period, or I liked what was happening when I was writing, or this was an ode to something. Is there any one particular book that really sticks out to you? Well, that's a really great way of putting it, actually. I have to say, I often uh, feel fondest of the most recent one. And I do feel particularly fond of The Last Remains because it does tie up some loose ends, in a way, some loose ends between Ruth and Nelson, but also some loose ends from earlier on in the series, so that I know have been waiting there ready to be tied up. So. I think that one is always going to be a favourite. I have a real soft spot for The Ghost Fields, which uh, is is kind of in the middle. I think it's a book, book seven, and it's about a Second World War plane being found um, in Norfolk and about those old uh, airfields that during the Second World War, there were these um, American airfields in Norfolk, and now they've fallen into disrepair, or some of them are farmland, and they're called The Ghost Fields. And I, I have a particular fondness for that one, I think, because it ends up with all the characters um, marooned together in a stately home. And I just love that. You know, I love that trope, uh, which you often find in crime fiction of people being sort of stuck in, in, a, in a house miles away from anywhere. But it's hard to pull it off uh, naturally, really. Um, but I think what happened was in this particular period, there were terrible floods, which, of course, was an awful thing. But there were genuinely the, these terrible floods in Norfolk. So it meant I could make them be sort of marooned in this house in the middle of nowhere. So that one is a particular favourite of mine. I also really like uh, The Dark Angel, which is set in Italy, because it's based in a place where we have a little house in Italy. I've called it Castello degli Angeli in the book, but the real place is called Fontana Liri Superiore. So I did like writing about that. Yes, a personal connection. Yes, definitely. And it's, it's not often that you get to write about a place that, that, you, that you personally know so well. And also, it was very nice to give Ruth a bit of a break, actually. It was the first time she went away on holiday. So, uh, you know, in, in 15 books, she's only had one holiday abroad, and that, that's the one in The Dark Angel. And then stuff still happens. St- unfortunately for her, it's still a crime novel. So, yeah, stuff still happens. Exactly. Well, let's talk about The Last Remains. Can you give me a quick synopsis now, and then we'll dive into some of my questions? Yes, so The Last Remain starts when uh, a skeleton is found behind the wall of a cafe in Kings Lynn in Norfolk. Again, Ruth's called in, a bit of an echo back to the first book, and this time she only has to look at the bones to know that they're relatively modern, partly because there's, there's a, a steel plate in the foot. So she knows that the bones are relatively modern, and they turn out to be those of a Cambridge student, an archaeology student called Emily, who went missing 20 years ago. And it's a very personal case for Ruth, because not only is it the same Cambridge College where she taught, the girl was a friend of her, of Ruth's great friend, Cathbad. So the story goes back to Cathbad and to a group of archaeologists 
an archaeology student who used to mate at a place called Grimes Graves, which is a Neolithic flint mine in Norfolk, and a very spooky, wonderful setting, I have to say. So all, all roads seem to lead back to the flint mine. So that's really the setting and the, the start of The Last Remains. Was it hard to craft this one in particular, knowing it was going to be the end for the characters, or had you been plotting and thinking about it for a while? It was quite hard because I had set myself a few tasks that I had to do. Not only did I, had I said to, to readers who followed Ruth and Nelson's sort of will they, won't they story, that in this book you would find out whether they did or they didn't. So I knew I had to deliver on that. Also, as I said, there were a few loose ends from, from earlier books that I wanted to really tie up. But also I'd sort of set myself a bit of a, a task, like a secret challenge of kind of mentioning every one of the previous 15 books in this book and tying them into the story. So any readers who have followed me on the way, and I should just say as well, if you haven't read any of the books, you can start here. All the books are completely sort of self-sufficient and you can read them as standalones. But if you have read all the previous books, there's a little something from all of them in this book. So it was quite hard to achieve that. I had a little chart written down. And when I when I mentioned something in the previous book, I was like, oh, tick that one off, tick that one off. I've done that. So there were a few challenges, but also it did make it a lot of fun to write, I have to say. I wish you had included that at the back so that I could make sure I had ticked them off myself. <laughs> Maybe I should post it on, on, on my Facebook page or something. That's a really good idea. I should have done that. Oh, that's a great idea to either put it on your website or Facebook yeah. or Instagram somewhere. I love that because I would love to go back and make sure I picked them all up. And I love that, don't you, when, when books give you something like that to do. I read a, a wonderful murder mystery at Christmas by Alexandra Benedict, and she had all these quiz questions that were mentioned in the book. And at the end, she gave you the answers, which was so great. Exactly. You're like, just in case I missed it, somebody does give me the key here. Yes. No spoilers here, but I loved the way you handled the ending. You wrapped up, obviously, the, the topic you mentioned a little bit ago, Ruth and Nelson, and what was going to happen with them. But you also wrapped in something else, and that was such a wonderful surprise. Oh, I'm so glad. I have to say uh, that particular bit of the plot was something I really wanted to do. And I did think in the end that it did work. You know, you're always a little bit worried when you write a book, of course. And when it comes out, you think, oh, you know, have I done what I set out to achieve? But I did feel pleased. I do like it when things are tied up neatly, not too neatly, but in a believable way. So I do hope I did that. So there were a few things like that that I did feel were achieved. And, uh, you know, I did, I did hope that, that that all worked, really, in terms of the plot. I thought it worked quite well. And now everybody's going to be dying to read the book so they can know what we're talking about. Oh, thank you. I do hope so. Thank you. Well, I saw in the back in the acknowledgements that two people won contests to have their names included in this one. I think that's so much fun when that happens. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, uh, for the last few books, I've offered uh, a, a prize for people who enter a charity auction for a charity that's really close to my heart for teenage cancer sufferers. And uh, the prize is to have uh, your name mentioned in one of my books. And it's always a bit of a challenge to include the character in the books. And I don't know whether other authors feel like this, but I always feel I have to say I can't make them the murderer or the victim. But also you want to make them a pretty significant character. So there's always quite a challenge. And I usually ask the person, whether are there anything, is there anything you want to go in, like any hobbies you have? And this particular character in this book runs marathons. So she goes in the book and I think I say something like, she runs marathons, but Ruth still likes her. So I just wanted <laughs> to have a few little uh, little sort of pointers to, to the real character's interests. 
And this this time, I also uh, wanted to include a local Norfolk charity, which is a Norfolk hospice. And so, in fact, I think it's the chairperson of the hospice won won the auction. So he's gone in the books as well, and he's become the chancellor of Ruth's University, which is quite an important role in this book because Ruth's job is under under threat, which uh, um, it's happening a lot in British universities that uh, departments like archaeology that that maybe can't be measured exactly in terms of money. Um, they're under threat of being closed, which is so shocking, I think, because of, of all the amazing knowledge and expertise that is tied up in an archaeology department. To close it just seems terrible, but that is the threat that's hanging over Ruth in this book. I think that's happening here as well, not necessarily with archaeology, but I know I have a friend whose son does musical theater and he had applied to a variety of colleges, went to USC where the program's doing beautifully, but two of the schools he applied to have shut down their program. So she was so glad he hadn't gone there. So I definitely think that's something that's happening a variety of places as they're worrying about cost cutting. But it's such a shame. Such a shame. It seems so short-sighted. I mean, there's quite a push here in, in the UK. Uh, the, the current government uh, wants people to say to study maths or, or math, she says in a bilingual way, <laughs> up to 18. And of course, maths is really important. But I think it's a real, really short-sighted to turn your back on the arts. And, you know, I'd love to see people continue to do music. My, my son is a musician. And it, it's very hard to be a musician without sort of having some sort of private lessons and, and private funding because it's just not taught in a lot of state schools. So I'd love to see the arts get some attention as well. I agree. And we can't all study math. I mean, there's only so many roads you can take with a math degree. And I mean, I studied math. I love math. But it I don't is- think everybody should study math. You know, I think you have to have a wide range of people studying different things and going into different careers. How boring would it be and limiting? Yes, exactly. And it's so, I, I, I feel it, it makes, makes a richer society and a subject like archaeology as well, that maybe you don't earn a lot of money when you're an archaeologist. Uh, I know that Andy always says that they, they um, employ archaeologists on building sites when they have a new build because the archaeologist has to see if there are any sort of archaeology there in the ground, particularly in a country like Britain that's so lived in for so long, you know, there might well be something Roman there in the, in the foundations. But Andy always says the archaeologist is the lowest paid person on site, always. Um, when you think of how much training they've had, but it's not about the money, is it? It's about other things. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily the jobs that generate money or make money. They're not always the ones that are most worth doing. So I think there were other measures. I think that's true. And back to people winning contests to be in a book. That would be so much fun. I need to do more investigating because I would love to be in a book as a character sometime. I'm never sure whether I would or not. But yes, and I suppose also because my real name is so noticeable. I think it would be quite difficult to slip a Domenica de Rosa into a book. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. But I know that people do seem very, very happy to have it. And a few people have become recurring characters. So Jam Adams who's the police dog handler in my books, started off as, as a competition winner. And actually, I've since met Jan and her lovely husband and their lovely dog. So now they've kind of become friends and they're still appearing in the book. So that's very nice. That is very nice. But how fun. And I can see what you're saying, that your name is distinctive enough. And then if you went with Ellie Griffiths, everybody would be like, well, I know her as well. But still, just that idea that you're showing up in print. And I can see why people would think that was fun. It is fun. And in fact, the, the writer, Peter James, you know, is a very well-known writer here, particularly in Brighton. He did include me and fellow Brighton writer, William Shaw, in one of his books, which was very sweet. It was a character saying, oh, my favorite writers are Ellie Griffiths and William Shaw, which was very sweet of him. I always enjoy when I see that. So what surprised you the most when writing this one? 
What surprised me the most? Well, one of the big surprises was Grimes Graves, which is the um, Neolithic flint mining complex that I went to in the course of researching the book. And you just, you can visit them. And I really do absolutely urge anyone to visit them if they can, because these incredible mine shafts, which are something like 12 meters down into the ground, which of course were excavated just by using antler picks and uh, bones of animals. And then these incredible mine shafts where they go right down to the earth and they would mine the flint from there. And that was a big surprise to me, just to go down there and to see this network of tunnels. And I'm not so good at going underground. I was a bit worried about going. And we climbed down this tunnel. I was very lucky because Andy and I got um, a private tour. So they took us down some of the mine shafts that aren't open to the public. And this great guy called Tim took us down. And at the bottom of the tunnel, at the bottom of the mine shaft, you saw these little tunnels. And I thought, thank goodness we don't have to go in there. And then Tim said, so we're just going to crawl into the smallest tunnel. And I thought, oh, no. But actually, it was really, really interesting. And so interesting that I forgot to be scared, really. But they do create quite a scary scene in the book. So that that was quite a surprise, I have to say, and a wonderful one. Do you have anything on your website where you have Ruth's various events that have happened or the crimes or things like that, so that if somebody came to Norfolk, they could do a Ruth Galloway tour? No, I don't. But there's going to be a book called Ruth Galloway's Norfolk, um, which is out in the UK uh, later on this year, I think in November. And it does do exactly that. So it follows Ruth's journey from, from the crossing places to the last remains and it's all the amazing places in Norfolk. So you've got Roman remains, uh, you've got Civil War remains, Victorian remains, you've got these amazing tunnels underneath Norwich. So all those will come into the book. So I will put something obviously about that onto, onto my website, but hopefully it will be available in the States soon too. Well, that's even better. I just think it would be so fun if I came to Norfolk to be able to visit all the places I've read about. So I love that you're doing it as a book. I would love, I have to say, it's a little little um, ambition of mine to have the Ruth Galloway trail through Norfolk. And some people just do it, um, you know, on their own bat. And recently over the Easter weekend here in Britain, a few people on Twitter have been sharing pictures where they have followed Ruth's journey. And it's been wonderful to see them sort of waltzing them to the shrine at Walsingham and the beach and Chroma Pier and all those things. So I have to admit the Ruth Galloway Trail is, is, a, is a goal for me one day. That would be very cool. It really would. <laughs> so what's up next for you? This Ruth book that has everywhere she has been, but what else? So yeah, so the next thing I'm going to do is um, another book in the Brighton Mystery Series, which is going to be called The Great Deceiver. And then there's another book in the series. It's not quite a series, but there's a group of kind of linked books that feature D.I. Hobbin Decor, who first appears in The Stranger Diaries. So the next book about her is going to be called The Last Word, and it's about an obituary writer. Very hard word to say, obituary, um, but hard for me anyhow. Um, and then there's going to be a new series. So there's going to be a new series. I, I can't say very much more about it because I'm only just you know coming up with the ideas for it, but I, I've got some ideas for a new series. And as I say, you never know, there might well be another Ruth book one day. I was wondering if you were going to start a new series. Well, it's it's just that you have all these ideas, don't you? And though it's wonderful to carry, follow the same character for 15 years, uh, there, there's a time when you want to write something different. And for me, this felt very much like I needed a pause, not just in Ruth's story, but kind of in my own story. I need a bit of a pause to think of some new things and to, to have some new challenges. So that's kind of where I am now. Go in a different direction. Yeah, yes. And just do some new things and come up with a new cast of characters. I must admit, 
it's very exciting to start peopling your world with, with different people. And do you think when you do that this time, you will really think hard, okay, I'm starting a new series and I need to not write myself into a corner? I mean, I wonder, I, I haven't ever noticed that in your books, but when you started these Ruth Galloways, you weren't maybe thinking, okay, I'm going to be writing 15 books. So there may be times when you look back and think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that or I wish I hadn't said she did this. Will you think more about that or will you just write and figure it's all going to work out like it did with Ruth? I will try and think a bit about that. You're so right. I mean, one little thing, but it turned out to be quite an annoying thing was this in the in the first book in Crossing Places. I said that Ruth never wore jeans. And I don't know why I said that because I live in <laughs> jeans. And it was so frustrating. Because you, so many times you want to say, just sort of shorthand for saying she wasn't dressed smartly or she was dressed casually. And so she was just in jeans. So I've got to say by about book eight, she's wearing jeans. So I'm going to try not to, not to do anything like that. But, you know, it's so funny, isn't it? Because you set yourself, think, oh, I'm, I must think about a character in, in a way that will last for a whole series. But I'm sure I will come up with characters who are, you know, who have their own difficulties and problems in them because you just can't be sure who's going to pop up in your mind. I, for example, I didn't really expect Cathbad, the Druid, in, in book one to, to now be a really strong character still in book 15. And I, I didn't know anything about Druids at the beginning, really, and I've had to learn quite a bit. But I'm sure there'll be something like that, a character who's meant to be a minor character who will suddenly start taking over. But that's quite fun too, isn't it, when you start to see that. And you start to see a character writing their own story in a way. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, I mean, you, you're like, I have no idea why I said she doesn't wear jeans, but it's easy to remedy that. So it's one of those things that you can just correct it or you can work, do a work around, whatever it's going to be. But I think it's just fascinating to think, okay, I'm writing a standalone. I don't really have to worry about anything that's happening again versus I'm writing a series and am I going to hobble myself by doing something or another? And you don't always know, do you? I remember in, in, in the first book that I thought would be a standalone, um, The Stranger Diaries. So there's a detective called Harbinder Kaur in that. And I remember the, the fantastic Scottish crime writer Val McDermott was so kind because she read a proof and was very lovely about the book. And she said, oh, when's the next book about Harbinder? And I said, oh, no, no, there isn't going to be another one. It's just a standalone. And she said, oh, she said in her lovely Scottish accent, which I'm not going to attempt to do. She said, oh, no, she's got more stories to tell. And so sometimes those characters do come up, don't they? Where you just, sometimes you've got a great character that, that's still a good character, but they're only going to be there for one book. You can't imagine them being there longer, but some characters kind of keep on at you, don't they? Until they, until you end up writing more about them. So I think that hopefully there'll be a few of those as well. And I think they're saying, okay, I still have stories to tell here. Don't leave me. This isn't the only book that I want to be in. Yes, definitely. They're sort of hammering away at the door, aren't they? Saying, well, hang on, I've got some more things to do. Got some more places I want to go and some more people I want to see. So yes, definitely. I hope I hope that will be the case. Yes. And I enjoy all of your books, but one of my very favorites is The Stranger Diaries. Oh, I'm pleased. Thank you. And I think we've talked about this before, but when I worked at Murder by the Book, it was such a huge hit there. And at one point we had a shelf that literally was just filled with that book and they just sold like crazy because we were all recommending it. Oh, I'm so glad. I do hope and I do think um, that it maybe is a book that really appeals to booky people, isn't it? Because it's about, it's about a short story, really, that starts to come to life. And so, and there are lots of sort of literary allusions and things like that. So Murder by the Book did amazingly with that book. But I think partly it was a book for booky people, a sort of love letter to booky people, really. I think that's a great way to look at it and probably why it did resonate so much, even with this group of readers who 
read a wide range of things, we literally all read it and loved it. And that just didn't happen very often. Oh, that's so great. And also, it was really wonderful to write a sort of gothic book as well, a sort of goth. I've always wanted to do that as I was saying, I love Victorian literature, and this is modern day, but it is a bit gothic. And it is about diary writing as well. And I write a diary. So all those things uh, made it a lot of fun to write, quite challenging to write sometimes. But I was so delighted by how well it did in the States. Definitely my, my most successful book in the States, yes. I can see that. Though, as I said, I love Ruth. And I think sometimes series, you know, take a while and they're, they're building, but it's just such a wonderful series. And I am sad it's done, but I totally get it. 15 books is a good amount. Well, thank you. I think 15 books is a good amount. It feels like a good place to stop. And I do hope anyone who reads The Last Remains will feel satisfied with, with what I've done so far. And feel it is a good place to stop. But as I say, I'm, you know, I'm not, it's not like um, Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes falling off the rack and back falls, you know. I haven't done that. Spoiler alert, I haven't done that. So the doors are open possibly to more. Yes. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Well, I've just read a book called Daisy Darker by, by a writer called Alice Feeney. Uh, she's British. I think this book uh, did, did pretty well in the States as well. And you know, I was talking earlier on about how I like to have all the characters marooned in a, in a house in the middle of nowhere. So this is my perfect setup. So it's a, it's a family reunion in a house in Cornwall on the West Coast there. And, and that house is only, there's a causeway to the house that you can only get along at a low tide. So when it's high tide, the house is totally cut off. And of course, this family, the darker family, darker in more than one way, are, are on this, in this house for a family reunion. And uh, it's no spoiler to say there's a little bit of a then there were none going on. And the characters start disappearing one by one. And I absolutely loved it. I thought it was, was really well done. There, there's a really clever twist in it, which I didn't get at all. But I read it back to see how, how she'd done it, how Alice had done it. And uh, she didn't cheat at all. But there's a brilliant twist in it. It's, it's a very good story, a very, very memorable narrator. So that's called Daisy Darker. And I've also just read, actually, it's a proof. And it's called The Conspirators. And it's by a writer called, well, he's really William Shaw um, as a British crime writer. But this is writing... I think as G.W. Shaw, and it's more of a thriller. And it's kind of almost was like a sort of old fashioned thriller, you know, and it's set, it's about a, a, a translator who I think is a great hero for, for a conspiracy thriller. And it's about the, the drug trade, infertility drugs. And it's, it's fascinating, very, very good. So that's The Conspirators by G.W. Shaw. That sounds really good. I love thrillers, especially ones, as you mentioned, that are kind of throwback thrillers. So I'm going to have to look that one up. Well, um, uh, William wrote a previous one that's called Dead Rich, um, again, as G.W. Shaw. And it's set on a, one of those millionaire super yachts. And it's so good. Again, it's that kind of, you know, old fashioned thriller, but on this amazing, this amazing setting. And all the opulence and all the like, sinisterness of these super yachts. Uh, so that's a, that's a great one as well, if you like that sort of book, Dead Rich, that one's called. Okay, good. Thank you so much. I always love learning about new authors. I'm not even familiar with him, so I'm going to have to go back and look him up. Do look him up. He's great. He's another Brighton writer who's great. And Alice Feeney as well is great. She's, and I'm quite pleased because actually I met Alice recently, um, only a couple of weekends ago at a crime writing festival in Denmark. And she's great. Lovely. Like a lot of these people who write dark books, tell a really lovely person. But I'm now reading through all her books. So I love discovering new people as well. Yes, she's really big here. Yeah. I think possibly bigger in the States than here. I'm not sure, but I think that might be right. 
I have no idea how she is there, but I know I see every time she has a book out, people are posting a lot about it. And Daisy Darker, definitely there was a a lot of publicity about it. Well, Ellie, I love chatting with you and I'm so happy you came back on the Thoughts From My Page podcast. And I can't wait for everybody to read The Last Remains. And if they're not familiar with Ruth, read the entire series. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Cindy. It's been great to be back. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes and luckily... That's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.